If you're able and you would rise with me while we read the word of God, we are reading from Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. <coughs> Excuse me. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so that we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. You may be seated. Thank you, Lynn, uh, for reading scripture this morning, and we are in Galatians chapter number two. As we uh, get to the end of chapter two, uh, we're quickly, seems quickly as we're walking through uh, the book here, but uh, we're at the end of Galatians chapter two. And our scripture reading went back to verse 11, because I did that to, in order to get the context of where we're reading. Uh, so as we study verses 17 through 21 this morning, uh, and very, invite you to... Uh, uh, study along with me. Maybe you've heard of this view, uh, people's view of Christianity before. Uh, maybe I, I actually call it a misconception. It is a misconception of Christianity. Uh, they say it this way. They say Christianity is taking the 10 things that you like to do the most and stopping them and then taking the 10 things that you like to do the least and start doing them. Uh, that's, a, that's a misconception. Uh, that is not Christianity. Uh, but the world might see it that way. And how do you explain that kind of view? Uh, it's probably most likely that they've received that view from uh, what we would call rule book Christians, right? Uh, those that believe that Christianity is all about following the rules. And if you follow those rules, you get more and more favor with God. And he will love you more. And all of this, this, this is really at the heart of it. It's a legalistic view. Uh, and that's what Paul's been talking about uh, in the opening chapters here uh, of Galatians. He's dead set against that view. Uh, he not only called it a false gospel, he claimed it really wasn't a gospel at all. If you're adding anything to salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone, that you're adding on to the gospel and it makes it a, a, not a gospel. Uh, that there's no way to get to heaven other than by faith in the Lord Jesus. 
And so last week we looked at verses 15 and 16 and we got to the heart of the matter. That was, hey, salvation, justification by works of the law, no one is saved. But you have justification through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we believe that. And so now as he continues on, he starts talking about the life that we now live by faith. Let's, let's begin with a word of prayer this morning. I pray that, God, I pray that today you would uh, open our hearts. Lord, help us to uh, study these words together, and I pray that you would encourage us, Lord, knowing what we have. But Lord, I pray that you would also challenge us to now live by faith. Uh, Lord, we believed, and we believe in your Son and what he did, and uh, Lord, our faith and trust is in him. And Lord, I pray that now that that would change who we are uh, as, as believers. And I pray that you would... Uh, 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 just work in us today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So if you notice, we went back and we read verses 11 to 16. Uh, we wanted to get the mindset. We wanted to find out, hey, what's Paul uh, talking about here? They're not just jumping in, but we want to understand the whole context of this passage. And so he, if he's wrapping up his autobiographical section back in the, uh, chapter 1, at the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, talking about things that he experienced. So he was defending his apostleship, if you will. Uh, and then in, in verse 11 through verse 14, he talks about this event that Peter struggled with. Uh, that he was there in Antioch, and then uh, he and, and Peter makes this choice to separate himself. Uh, he separated himself from the Gentiles because he's fearful of that circumcision party that they were uh, describing. Those Judaizers, those people that said, hey, it's grace, but there you have to add more to it. Uh, the, anyone follow Jesus has to be circumcised. Uh, and basically, if you want to look at the heart of that, is in order to be a true follower, you have to work for it. And so Paul comes along and says, no, 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 that's not the case. Because Peter makes the mistake. He's allowing the fear of those Judaizers to drive his decision making. And so Paul says, hey, no, Peter, I know you don't truly believe that. But you're allowing your fear to drive your hypocrisy. And so you basically, as we saw a few weeks ago, you put on the mask, Peter. You're, you're two different things. You're, you're acting in a way that's different than what you really believe. And so last week, we got to verses 15 and 16, and he says, hey, it's not works, it's simply faith. And he says, we also believe that, Peter. I know you believe that, and I know I believe that. But Peter, you're choosing the path of what we call legalism, and you're in danger of hurting your testimony with other people. So Paul kind of calls him out on it. So that's where we pick up today in verse 17. And in verse 17, 18, and 19, there's a couple of crucial statements here that I think are important for us uh, as individuals. Look at verse 17. But if, in, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. As Paul continues the letter here, uh, it seems that there's a shift maybe in his audience from specifically talking to Peter in verses 15 and 16 to perhaps talking to the, all the Jewish Christians at that moment. If you remember, he calls them out publicly. So this could be he's, he's now addressing the whole crowd that's sitting there. Obviously, in the letter here, he's writing to the Galatians. Uh, but what he's saying is, hey, Peter, you and those other Jews, because remember, Peter's hypocrisy led others to do the same thing. And he's saying, hey, you guys, you listen, you've been given, uh, you, you had given approval to this Judaizer idea. 
You, you, you're, you're basically saying the Judaizers are right. It's necessary for a Gentile to keep the Jewish law. And so he makes some crucial points here. He says, if the Judaizers are correct, if, if you do have to be circumcised, if you do have to do these things, then, then if they're correct, that believers are saved by keeping law. That's what he's saying. And that in order to stay saved, you have to continue to be bound by that law to maintain your salvation. And then even before the Judaizers arrived in Antioch, Peter, Barnabas, Paul, all those other ones, they had fallen in the category of sinners because, listen, they're eating and fellowshipping with the Gentiles. Before the Judaizers even show up, they're hanging out with the Gentiles. And so having those Judaizers show up doesn't change anything, which is why Paul's making this a big deal. Because, listen, he said, you're not in step with the gospel. Your conduct is not in step. This is not the gospel. You're, you're false teaching. You're saying Christ plus this or Christ plus circumcision. But I think a, a bigger point here that he's trying to make is that phrase, is Christ a servant of sin? And Paul's saying this. He's saying, listen, if your fellowship with the Gentiles made you a sinner, then Christ himself is a minister of sin. You just remember, like, who did he hang out with? Mark 7, verse 18, Jesus says, Then you are without understanding. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not into his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. He's saying, hey, eating with someone is not the sin. So why are you breaking away from that when that crowd, that legalistic crowd, shows up? If the Judaizers are right, Paul is saying, then that makes Jesus wrong. If they taught the truth, then Jesus is teaching falsehood. And, and, and I think that when he said this phrase, that I think that Peter was probably shaken to his core. Like, to be called a, a hypocrite, that's probably, you know, okay, that doesn't feel good. But to think about himself being a sinner, or even worse, to think that the view that he was taking was making Jesus a servant of sin, a minister of sin, that was extremely core-shaking for Peter. As a matter of fact, you even see Paul responds to that. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. Certainly not. May it never be. Uh, maybe your, your Bible says, God forbid it. Like, that's Paul's phrase. That's the one he likes, right? Remember in Romans where he says, uh, shall we keep on sinning so that God's grace shows more? God forbid it. Like, no, 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 no. And so I wonder if, if Paul, his emotions at this point had gotten, he's, he's, and we say, well, come on, Paul, chill. But at the same time, Paul's like, you guys, you're missing the idea of what we're trying to teach here about grace. That, that it, it, it's not doing something. It's, 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 it's simply by belief. It's simply by faith. If you feel like you have to do this, then it's not grace. So I wonder if his emotions had reached this, like, this, this, this point. He knew how serious this was. So he says, is this the case? Absolutely not. There's no way that the Judaistic legalism can be true because it goes against what Christ teaches. As a matter of fact, if you look at the last verse of our scripture today, verse 21, he even says, if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. 
Like, if you could attain righteousness by being good, then Christ's death was purposeless. There's no reason for him to die. Because then we could just work and we could compare one another and we could live and, 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 and level ourselves and be like, this is the way we get there. And Paul says, that's not the case. That's not the case. He continues in verse 18. He says, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. To kind of get us in perspective here and, and better seeing this particular passage, I want to go back uh, and show you a few verses from Acts. We've seen these before, but just to kind of get us back into the mindset here. Acts chapter 15 uh, describes some of the similar events here from Galatians. Acts 15, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Verse 2, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. All right, so it's the same situation. You've got to be circumcised in order to be saved. Paul and Barnabas are like, no, you don't. So there's this struggle. So they go to Jerusalem. Verse 6, the apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Guys, you remember I saw the sheet, I spoke with Cornelius, and I saw the Holy Spirit come on the, the Gentiles. And so, yeah, you know this. Verse 8. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by, not works, faith. And then he says, now, why are you, Judaizers, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples? Why are you telling us it's gotta, you've got to be under the law? He goes, I, our fathers couldn't bear that. We can't bear that. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And so Peter in, in Acts here is saying, hey, if we require the Gentiles to be circumcised, that that's putting God to the test. That's placing a yoke on the disciples. That's giving us this burden that we have to carry because now we've got to be under the law. And it's adding something to what salvation is. And so the picture there is, is, is going back under the law. And he says no one can bear that. You can't bear that. I can't bear that. No, no matter the highest, the best person in the world can't bear that. They can't, they can't make it that way. And so if you add that to salvation, no one's going to be saved. Why? Because we're not good enough. There, there's, 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 no, there's no one that can be justified by works, which is what Paul said last week. So now what does he say? He says, for if I rebuild what I tore down. What, what, was torn, what was torn down? What does that mean? This idea of rebuilding what was torn down. The, the idea that Paul is talking about is the law. The law was torn down. And Paul's saying, hey, why do you want to rebuild something that God tore down? Remember uh, the, the story when Christ died on the cross? What happened in the temple on that day? The veil was torn into from top to bottom. 
And so Paul's saying, hey, why do you want to re-put the veil back up? Why do you want to go back to what it once was? Why are you trying to, like God removed it. God opened it for all people. He sacrificed his son. And why do you want to go back then under the law and try to do those requirements? He says, if I do that, I prove myself to be a transgressor. And that phrase is referring to a sinner, someone who has, who has broken the law. Look at what Hebrews says. But when Christ appeared as a high priest, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not as his creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood and goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh. Now notice verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from, notice, dead works to serve the living God. Listen, Jesus has paid the price, the full price. And Paul is saying here, listen, if you just try to live a good life, if you try to be a good person and do the works, you're going to die. By living in this world and trying to do it, you're going to die. But notice what he says in verse 19. But I died to the law. Why? So that I might live to God. He says, through the law, I died to it. Over in Romans 7, he says, I'm, he says, do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Likewise, my brothers, you have died to the law through Christ. So that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. He says, hey, you don't have to physically die to the law. Christ did it for you in order that you might bear the fruit of God. So what Paul is saying is no matter how much he does, all of that religious living was giving him nothing. It was giving him death because he couldn't carry the yoke of the law. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm a tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. And all of that is, is, is dung. All of that is nothing. And if he couldn't do it, we can't do it. So no matter how often you go to church, no matter how much you give to the poor, no matter how, much, how many times you walk the old lady across the street, it doesn't matter if you don't have Christ. You can't get to heaven. And of course, listen, Paul knows that Peter doesn't believe those Judaizers, but he just came under their influence. See, Peter, years before, had torn down that way of thinking. And he realized Jesus was all that he needed. But then he started to rebuild that when he pulled back from the Gentiles. He, he started to show, no, that I don't really believe, even though Paul says, I know you really believe it. So Paul is saying that lifestyle proves us to be transgressors. Not fulfillers of the law, but violators of the law. The law is not there to save us. It's to remind us that we need saving. Why? Because the law shows us that God is holy and we are not. It shows us our sin. 
It lands us flat on our faces before God as sinners. We'll be talking about it in Sunday school, that the idea of lost. And as Christians, we know what the idea of lost is. We know what the idea of sinners are because each one of us recognizes that we are and that we don't deserve it. So we fall on our faces. I'm not worthy. And so while we're there, that's when we see the hand of Jesus reach down and lift us up and say, it's okay because I paid for you. It's okay because that's grace. So if you really want to live for God, you have to let go of that law keeping. You have to let go of faking it. You must lose all of your earning power before God and you will fall at his feet with nothing but need, nothing but Christ. So I said in living we die. And the second point is in dying we live. Look at verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. Years ago, I grew up in church, and years ago, my mom had, a, had a, her, her Bible. It was her Bible. Uh, it had a bunch of notes in it from her, uh, and she had it for many years. I don't know, actually, if she still has it or not, uh, but it had a lot of stuff in it. Well, I, I, the reason I bring it up was at the front of the Bible, she had her name, and underneath that was a place for a life verse, and this was her life verse. Like, when... I remember reading it as a kid, seeing Galatians 2.20. And of course, when you read someone's life verse, you're like, ooh, let's see what it says, you know. Uh, and I went to it, and I remember reading this, and I'm like, okay, interesting, Mom. You know, I'm a kid. I'm like, I don't know, great. But for over 30 years, I've, whenever I hear or read this verse, I think about my mom and her Bible. This verse has been printed on t-shirts and coffee mugs or maybe it's on art and or in songs uh, you've probably heard this verse dozens of times maybe you have it posted somewhere in your house and this verse is so beautiful it says i've been crucified with christ so that it's not i who live but christ who lives in me Paul says, listen, by dying with Christ, who died under the penalty of the law, not because he deserved it, because he was taking your place. All the law has been satisfied. All the demands of sin have been satisfied because Christ did it. And so now sin doesn't have a hold on you anymore. Sin doesn't have control of you anymore. That your old life is now put aside so that now you're not the one who's living, but Christ is the one who's living in you. And so you're like, well, why all this? Can't we just like just can't we just have the checklist rules, you know, and be like there, 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 there. And as long as we do all those things, we're okay. Why this talk of dying? Romans 6, Paul says it this way. He says, we know that our old self, you know, the former life, was crucified with him. So in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer, notice, be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free 
from sin. That's a huge, important truth. And it must, listen, in that there's a recognition of who God is. There's a recognition of who you are and saying, yes, I'm a sinner. And so I realize, hey, I can't be righteous on my own. So it's only through Christ. And so I die with Christ. I, I crucify the old self with Christ so that now I live free in Christ. And I would say that it's more than just a recognition of that. It's more than just a head knowledge of him. Being crucified with Christ carries the idea that, listen, I'm putting to death those former things. Being good, doing good work, I'm, I'm putting those to death. I, thinking that those are going to get me anywhere. I'm completely now submitting to him. I'm completely following him. I'm taking my entire life on him. And I'm dying to the former. I'm dying to sin And now I'm following Christ. But the second thing I wanted to say, it's not just dying to sin, it's also dying to self. Do you see what it says? I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives. See, this is where we as Christians need to be reminded. It's no longer I who live. We daily live here. We have to, Paul says, I die daily in 1 Corinthians. That that every day I present my body a living sacrifice. Every day I wake up and I say, God, this is your life and I'm following you today. F.B. Meyer said this, the curse of the Christian and of the world is that self is our pivot. It is because Satan made self his pivot that he became a devil. Take heaven from its center in God and try to center it in self and you transform heaven into hell. See, the philosophy of the Bible is to do away with self and to make Christ all in all. As a follower of Jesus Christ, I have to remind myself daily, it's not my will, but his will. Not mine, but yours, God. Yes, you may walk me through something tragic. Yes, you may walk me through something difficult. But this is not my life. This is your life. The life uh, that I now live. It's no longer I who lives, but it's Christ who lives within me. Over in Colossians 2, he says it this way. You were dead in your trespasses and, and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God has made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Listen, that's justification. That's justification by faith. That's what it means to come to Christ. But did you notice that's not the end of the verse? It's like, okay, I've done that. Now what? He then says, the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The life that I now live. What are the results then? So you're saved by faith now. What is the result? How do we now live? Because we were dead in sin. Christ made us alive in him. We died to the law. We died to flesh. Now, how do we live in Him? Because is it whatever we want? Can we simply just be whatever we want to be? No, Paul addresses that in Romans. 
to speak about the grace of God and the radical grace of God, what it produces are some interesting thoughts. If grace is radical, if it's really salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, if it's really those things, then it doesn't matter what I do. My obedience doesn't matter anymore. I could just keep on sinning. And of course, you know Paul's answer to that in Romans 6? What shall we say? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound more? By no means. God forbid it. Here in Galatians, certainly not. It's all the same phrase. He says, how can someone who's dead to it still live in it? And further, why would you want to? So, justification. What are the... Just gospel is the root, all right? That's the root. I'm, I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. Uh, that's the root. Now, what's the fruit? What's the result? The first thing I want to say is a new identity. A new identity. 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It is no longer I, but Christ who lives in me. I have a new... So I'm, I'm not my own person anymore? Like, I, I, have I lost myself? You know, like, I, what about me? And I would say, yeah, you do. You lose yourself. Let me illustrate it differently. My wife and I have been married for 16 years. Yes, 16 years. I got it right. Over these years, I would say we've gotten to know each other pretty well. So at, at, a, at a point where if I go to a particular restaurant with her, I can pretty much tell you what she's going to order. Like I can look at the menu and be like, she might get that. She might get, I can tell you what she won't order, which is usually what I order. Uh, she's going to probably get, I, like I know her likes, I know her dislikes. All right. If I pull up Netflix and I see a bunch of British shows, I know she's been watching Netflix because she loves those shows. She's watching a show in French. Are you learning French? No, I just like it. She's like reading subtitles. I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> anyway, I want to read. Read a book, right? No, I know her likes. And she, listen, she throws it back at me because I like Star Trek. So she's like, what's wrong with you? you know. I know that she loves pineapple on pizza. I know her. Why? Because we're together all the time. It, you may have heard this statement that, that elderly people who have been married a very long time begin to look like each other. Right? You ever heard that? Yeah. Cheyenne, I'm sorry. <laughs> like, it's going to get worse for you. It's going to get better for me. <laughs> yeah. But they start to look like each other. Now, is this a bad thing for my wife and I to know each other that well? No. Why? Because we're together. And we're together. And we're living this life together. And we start to think together. We start to become like the other one because we know what the other one is. And our lives start to maybe even start to blend together or how much time we spend together. 
That's the idea of what I'm talking about when you have an identity in Christ. That doesn't scare you. Oh, I, well, I guess God's my identity now. I, I don't even know who I am anymore. No, 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 no. This is a beautiful thing because this is based on a relationship with God over the course of time. And so what happens is the more time you're spending with him, the more that he's is pouring into you and the more that you're following him, there's this beautiful relationship and you start to love the things that God loves. You start to hate the things that God hates. You start to become more and more embodied in Him. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. A new identity. The other thing I would say is there's a new direction. A new direction, or you could say a new will, or a new purpose. So in terms of, of, of this idea where it says, the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. God gives us a new will. His will. In the, term, in, in the idea of, of God's will for our life. Maybe you've heard of that before. Teenagers. Christian, excuse me, Christian teenagers want to know, what is God's will for my life? Right? Like that. Where do I go to college? Or what do I study? Or who am I going to marry? And I talk with students at school. I'm like, wouldn't it be great if there's a big curtain out there and it says God's will? And on the other side of that curtain is the person you're going to marry. And they're like, ooh, that's good. And I'm like, yeah, but what if that other person sitting in the classroom here is on the other side of that curtain going, who's on that side of the curtain? Oh, ooh, no, I don't want to marry him. <laughs> yeah. What, what if that, who am I going to marry? How many kids am I going to have? What's God's will? Where am I going to eat lunch after church today? What, what does God want for us to eat today? I think, the, I think that we struggle with this. Because there's so many of these life questions that just don't seem to be answered in this book. Right? The Bible doesn't say anything about my college. This past week in our school or small groups at school the topic was gray areas how do christians respond to gray areas the areas that are not specifically addressed in the bible like social media or or uh, having a cell phone or, or video games or things like that and so there's this struggle because hey i want to know god's will for my life well listen i think there's some good news that for we should understand okay and that is first of all god's will is not lost. You know what I mean? It, you don't have to go around and find, like God's not, you know, secretly hiding it from, ooh, you're getting closer, warmer, warmer, what, colder, 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 warmer. That's not the case with God's will. It's not an Easter egg hunt. But I think culture wants us to believe, and I think our Western idea wants us to think that God's will is like that. That God's will is mysterious and, and needs to be found, right? There was a book came out uh, several years ago called The Secret. And it sold millions of copies because it talked about the secret to success in life. The secret to happiness. Why was it so successful? Because people felt that if something is worthwhile, it has to be exclusive and mysterious. Think of all the latest diet fads, Right? We have found the secret to weight loss. These pop on my Facebook all the time. I don't think, I think they're trying to tell me something. You know, you can lose weight too. Hey, don't judge me. 
scroll on. <laughs> we have found the secret. Why? Hey, that, what's the secret? Is this how God's will is? Some sort of big mystery to unlock the secrets? No, no, no. Listen, you read this verse. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Look at it like this. That God desires for me to follow his will so much that he lives in me to accomplish it. Why do we get so caught up with finding God's will? God lives in us. He gives us not only a new identity, but he gives us a new direction. He gives us a new purpose. But yet, what do we do? Well, we try all this other stuff. The largest book, group of books in the bookstore. Self-help books. Why? Because these books have the secrets that we should be doing. You know what that does? If you just do this, you just do that, you just do this, you just do that, then you can find God's will. You know what that does? That takes you back under the law. If I just do those things, then God will be satisfied and pleased and he'll show me his will, then I can follow. No, no, no. We do self-help books. Or maybe you've done this. I don't, don't raise your hand. I've been guilty of it. You ever done the random Bible verse method? You know what I'm talking about? It's like... All right, God, I'm just going to open up. I'm going to find a verse here. Psalm 124, verse 5. The waters rage about my head. Hmm. What does that mean? Let me go find another. That's what we, it's called the random Bible verse method. What does that mean? Oh, don't go out in Lake Michigan. The waters will rage around your head. No, 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 no. Our Bible, listen, your Bible is not a fortune cookie. Because what you're doing is you're taking a verse and you're stripping it of all of its context. What does it mean the waters rage about my head? Nothing to you. Read the rest of the passage. The random Bible verse. But, you know, if I'm going to do something for God, it's going to be that. That's not it. Maybe we go through what we call the miraculous event method. Like, I'm just going to, you know what, I'm just, I'm just going to live my life. I'm just going to wait. I want to see this amazing thing that's going to unfold in front of me that's going to reveal God's will, a burning bush or, you know, uh, a light like Paul did on the road to Damascus. And I would say, what about the passage when he talks to Elijah? It's not this, it's not this, but it's in that little voice. It's in the Holy Spirit working in us. Every single day. Now listen, can God use a self-help book to help us? Yes. Could God take a verse that we just randomly choose to teach us something? Absolutely. Can he do a miraculous event in our life to teach us? Yes. He wants you the donkey to get his message across. He can do any of that. But I would say that the, a more biblical model of following God's will is to simply walk with him daily. Just wake up in the morning. Begin with God. God, today, you have woken me. I have woken up. <laughs> like, even that's a gift from God, right? Like, I've woken up today. And God, I pray today that I trust in you. I pray today that I don't live on my own, but I live in you. 
The life I now live. And I would say it's based off of this relationship. Not a checklist. All right, if I do this, I do this, I do this, and I do that. Spending time with. I remember my first time going to Washington, D.C., uh, the capital. Uh, I went with, well, the first time I went, I went with my wife. We were just the two of us. Uh, but I also took a class uh, from North Carolina there. And uh, before I went, both of the, well, the first time I went, we just kind of wandered around, looked at things. When I went with the class from North Carolina, one of the people that went with us on our trip was our school administrator, a guy by the name of Mr. Ames. And I remember going and talking with him and talking about what we were going to do, what the museums were, take the kids. And, and I remember that I could get maps and directions and things like that. But Mr. Ains, he told, me, he, he told me something else. He said, listen, just follow me. I said, well, I'm going to look up some information about the, the monuments, like the World War II and, and Abraham Lincoln and Jefferson. And he goes, no, 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 just, I got it. He knew so much information. He knew all the ins and outs. He, he knew all the best spots for pictures, little tidbits of information. Hey, did you know there's a Kilroy on the World War II monument? you got to find it. It's, actually, it's over here. And I would say that on that trip, I got so much more out of the trip by simply spending time following Mr. Ains around these monuments. And I could have looked it up and been like, okay, here's this, here's this. But it was so much better for me because I was with someone who knew all of the information already. See, I think the problem with us as Christians is that we think that if we just read some books or try to organize our life in such a way that we can check things off a list, that we're going to see God's will for our life. And, but it's, and I say, no, it's based on just follow the one who knows it. Just follow him. Just have him live in you. He died. And you died with him so that he lives in you. And you have a new life. Then after 5, 10, 15, 40 years of life, you know you're walking in step with the Lord. Why? Because it's every single day. I trust in Him. I trust in Him. You know what I say? You know how freeing that is? Do you know how, how much of a burden that lifts off of you? Instead of being like, it's got to be this rule, and got to be this rule, and got to be this, and got to be that. It's no, I'm just going to live in Christ, and I'm going to let Christ live in me. He's going to direct me. I'm going to follow him. That burden is lifted. Remember what Jesus said? My yoke is easy. My burden is light. See, that's the beauty of having Christ in your life. So you don't wander around aimlessly. So the question, instead of saying, what is God's will for my life, should probably be reworded a little bit. We often think about it, but when you think about that phrase, what is God's will for my life, do you realize it makes you the center? What is God's will for my life? Instead, why don't you just say, what is God's will? What do I need to do to get on board with God's will? You know what it is? I died, and Christ lives in me. So get our eyes off of ourselves, put them on Christ. One final verse, verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God. 
For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. What an interesting way to finish this chapter. Right before, by the way, next week, look at verse three, or chapter three, verse one, he calls them a bunch of fools. Oh, foolish Galatians. Like, whoa, Paul. What an interesting way. I don't nullify the grace of God. I don't make it of no value. I don't try to live according to the law. How do we nullify the grace of God? Easy. We simply say we don't need Jesus. I don't need him. As long as I go to church, as long as I go to Sunday school, as long as I read my Bible, as long as I do all these religious things, that's going to please him. And in essence, what we're saying is I don't need Jesus. I need church. I need religion. Or what we do is we just reject him altogether. And we replace him with success or money or health or, or fortune or, or a family or a job or social media or whatever. We say, I don't need him. That's how we nullify the grace of God. And I would say, as I illustrated before, that there are these two ditches on the road of grace. These two ditches that people keep falling into on either side. One is the legalism side. The side that thinks the rules are what gain you favor. The other side is what we call the lawless side. The side that says it doesn't matter what you do. But you can, it's, just, it's just this. And I would say neither of them are correct. See, the road of grace frees you from the law. And the road of grace keeps you in line with the Spirit. I close with this verse, Romans 8. Verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This morning, what life are you living? Is it a life of the flesh or life of the Spirit? Because it's Christ who lives in you. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. Why? Because He loved me and He gave Himself for me. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we humbly read these words, God, I'm reminded that so many times I... I don't live in you. I try to do it. I try to, to have the checklist. God, many times I act just like Peter. I try to go back under the law. God, help me. Help me to see how, how beautiful it is to just live in you. To follow you. God, I pray today that you would, you would encourage us, that you would show us, Lord, that it's living by faith. If there's someone here today, Lord, that does not know you as, your personal, as their personal Savior, God, I pray today that they would see that these other ways just can't measure up. They just can't make it. It is only by faith in your sacrifice. And God, I pray that as we 
remember that sacrifice, that it would encourage us to press on, as Hebrews tells us, to, to walk in maturity, to crucify ourselves daily, to crucify our flesh daily, to make that conscious choice. Not because it gains us any more favor, Lord, but it just, it's what we do because we are in you. We love you, and we thank you for an opportunity to worship together. It is in your precious name we pray. Amen.